Thank you, Tim, for reading our scripture tonight. And thank you, Dan, for leading our singing. And I uh, appreciate that extra time you gave me tonight. Last week he said that uh, he cut it short, and he said, uh, I left you about 15 extra minutes, and he said, you took every bit of it. I really didn't intend to, but it just worked out that way. But we are looking tonight at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to continue looking at our key chapters in the book of Genesis for the next couple of weeks, and we've got laid out several chapters in Scripture over the course of the next year that we're going to get to, Lord willing. We hope that you are studying along and you're looking at these chapters prior to the coming week. I know Jared on Wednesday nights kind of giving a little preview, and so we hope that you're making preparation for each and every week as we look at these key chapters. Tonight, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, last week in our study, you remember, we looked at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I think I mentioned in Bible class, there's really no way you can do justice to the abundance of material that you have in one or two chapters in a 30-minute lesson. You just can't do it. And uh, I would encourage you to dig deeper and study outside our time together because it will enrich your life. And the things that we study together are merely, uh, they're really just a tool to help you dig deeper. And so I want to encourage you to do that in the coming weeks as we look at these chapters in Scripture. I do want to mention very quickly, we've got a number of visitors with us. As always, we want you to know how welcome you are. We're grateful that you're with us tonight. We encourage you to come back. Uh, great news with regard to Cade obeying the gospel this past week. I got a text from Jared on Thursday that he wanted to be baptized, and we're so grateful for that. And Cade is a, a great young man. We're appreciative of him and his family. And uh, I hope that if you haven't had the opportunity to say something to him and to congratulate him on that great decision, I hope you'll do that tonight. So we look at Genesis chapter 3. I want to just very quickly remind you, when you look at Scripture, if someone were to ask you the question, what is the Bible all about? Ultimately, the thrust of Scripture is redemption. It's all about God's redemption of the human family. Last week in our study, we looked at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God being the creator of all things. That is, God was the creator of the material universe as well as mankind. In chapter 3, we are introduced, sadly, to the fall of man. And this is what I would say to be one of the key chapters in all of Scripture. Because everything that we talk about regarding the redemption of the human family goes back to Genesis chapter 3. So in our study tonight together, as we think about the fall of man... I want to begin by talking for a minute or two about the prohibition. In order for us to appreciate the prohibition, we've got to go back to chapter 2. Now in chapter 1, after creating the world and man, you remember God surveyed everything that He had made, and He said, it's very good. Mankind, no doubt, being the crown of, of His creation. So in chapter 2, we have a record of God commanding the first couple. In verse 15, look at what Moses records for us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So as we look at this prohibition set forth by the Creator, God, God sets forth a command to the first couple. The command that God gave was clear and concise. We might even say it was crystal clear, wasn't it? No misunderstanding what God said. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God said, the day you eat of that, He said, you will surely die. Inherent in this prohibition is the fact that mankind has been endowed with human volition, the ability to make choices in life. We can infer that from the passage, can't we? Because God said, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat thereof, you're going to die. Mankind is not, was not created as a robot, but rather God endows each of us with the ability to make choices in life. Sometimes we make good choices, sometimes not so good. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, you remember that very important passage of Scripture where Joshua said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Again, this idea of a choice. Choices are set forth all throughout Scripture. Now, let's move from that and think for a moment or two about the perpetrator. When we make our way into chapter 3, as Moses begins to narrate the creation and then the fall of God's first couple, we are introduced to the serpent. As we think about the identity of this serpent, I submit to you that the devil, or Satan, was a created being. God is the one who created the angelic host. Satan obviously was a fallen angel. When did that occur? Well, the six days of creation. Again, you remember Paul in Colossians chapter 1, talking about Jesus, said He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were made that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones and dominions, principalities or powers, all things were made by Him and for Him. The reference here in Colossians chapter 1 regarding thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. In the original, it has to do with various classes of angelic beings. I wish we had time to look at all the Bible has to say about the devil. Now some have looked at the Old Testament and they've talked about the fall of Satan. And as you read in Genesis chapter 3, not just about the identity of the serpent, but also his intent. There are some, obviously, that will go to the book of Isaiah in chapter 14. 
where the prophet there talks about the fall of the king of Babylon. And some would see in that a personification of the fall of the devil. In Ezekiel chapter 28, a lamentation is made concerning the kings of Tyre. Again, some would see in that statement of Scripture a personification of the fall of Satan. I had a professor many years ago in graduate school. He wrote a book, and one of the things he talked about was these two verses and their connection to the fall of Satan. I would encourage you to spend some time, read that, study it, and come to your own conclusions. But nonetheless, we talk about the identity of the serpent. And you remember in Matthew chapter 4, matter of fact, in the New Testament, we have somewhat of an expansive view of the serpent or the devil, don't we? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, he is identified as the tempter. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus identifies him in about verse 38 as the wicked one. In that same chapter, in verse 39, he is called the enemy. In John chapter 12, at verse 31, Jesus speaks of the prince or the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul would identify him as the God of this age, the God of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 2, he is identified and spoken of as the prince of the power of the air. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 8, Peter acknowledges the fact that he is our adversary. He is not an ally of mankind, but rather he is an adversary. He is our age-old adversary. In Revelation chapter 12 at verse 9, John in the Revelation speaks of the devil as the deceiver of the whole world. And then if you go back to John chapter 8 verse 44, you remember Jesus talking about the devil identified him as both a murderer and a liar. So what about his intent? What's, what was the intent of the devil in the Garden of Eden? His intent was to destroy the relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with Almighty God. His desire was to divide and conquer, to destroy the intimate relationship that they enjoyed with God, with God in that beautiful setting set forth in Scripture. His intent today is to destroy you and me. The devil wants to, the devil wants to circumvent our faith in the Lord. He will do everything within his power to disrupt and to destroy the peace and harmony that we enjoy with Almighty God. In the Garden of Eden, when the devil came on the scene, listen to what Scripture records, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 at about verse 3, Paul talks about how the devil, the serpent, beguiled 
or deceived Mother Eve in his craftiness. So he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Had God said in that initial command back in chapter 2, verse 15, that they were not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Nothing said. God, in the long ago, according to Moses, said they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve, however, said they weren't to touch it, nor eat it, lest they die. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4, I want you to look at the blatant lie set forth by the devil. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Not what God said. That was as blatant of a lie as you will ever read in your life. God had clearly articulated His will to the first couple. God said in a very crystal clear fashion, You are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat of it, you will die. But then note the continuation. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Really, the devil sought to undermine the goodness of God, didn't he? God intended to bless the first couple, and he did so in that utopian environment known as the Garden of Eden. God gave them everything they needed. They enjoyed peace and harmony and tranquility. They had a relationship with their Maker, and then the serpent came. And he undermines the character of God. And not just the character of God, but the command of God. I mean, imagine, here's the serpent. The Creator has already said you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet the serpent comes along and says, look, you're not going to die. I mean, God knows that the day you eat of it, you'll be like, you'll be like Him. Your eyes will be opened, knowing good and evil. Now look at verse 6. Moses writes, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Let me tell you how the devil operates. You remember over in 1 John chapter 2, John said, Love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he said, For all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh. Number two, the lust of the eyes. Number three, the pride of life. He said, these things are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. All right, so with that in mind, you think about how the devil today packages and repackages temptation to those of us in the human family. How does he do it? 
just like he did in the garden. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So here it is, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, the text says she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and, that, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Think with me for a minute about the penalty. In verse 6 and following, we have a record of the fall of man, don't we? The fact that they succumbed to temptation. They gave in to the overtures of the devil. When they gave in to the overtures of the devil, that opened the floodgates, so to speak. And we look around in the world today, and what do we see? We see the effects of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Now bear in mind, today we suffer the effects, the consequences of what took place in the garden. But we are not, as some espouse, born as sinners. You'll hear people talk about our sinful nature. No, we're, we're not born in sin. You remember last year, one of our key verses, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, when Ezekiel the prophet said, The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. We're born into a world of sin, but we're not born sinners. Sin is identified by John as the violation or transgression of the law, 1 John 3 and verse 4. The word sin literally means a missing of the mark. Now I would grant in Romans chapter 3, Paul would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You remember he prefaced that by saying, there is none righteous, no, not one. Sin is the scourge of the human family. But now note, if you would, the record. Sin makes its inception into the world. So you have sin, and then associated with that, you have the shame of sin. Look at verse 6. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why do you think they tried to hide? I think they were ashamed. They knew they had violated the law of God. So note what it said. In verse 9, God calls out to Adam. And God said to Adam, Adam, where are you? God wasn't asking Adam for information about the presence of Adam. In other words, wasn't trying to find out where Adam was, but rather the point was God wanted Adam to know exactly where he stood. Well, where was that? He had violated God's law, hadn't he? So Moses writes, Adam responds by saying, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And then God asked this question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Again, reiterating the very command that He had given. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God said, you remember, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And what does Adam do? Note what Moses says. Adam responds to God by saying, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. You know what he's doing? He's passing the buck, isn't he? Listen, Adam was to have been her protector. And yet he failed in that. Eve succumbed to the serpent, the, temp the temptation set before her. She transgressed the will of God, as did Adam. Adam clearly violated the law of God, and yet he wanted to blame his wife. We talk about the blame game today. People today often want to blame others for their problems in life, for their mistakes in life. The bottom line is we have to own our transgressions, don't we? We have to own the mistakes that we make in this life. I like David. You remember David when confronted by Nathan the prophet after he had had a relationship with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah the Hittite killed on the front line of battle. Nathan comes to him and basically Nathan says, look, David, you're the man. So in Psalm 51, you have David acknowledging his shortcomings before God. And here's what David said, Psalm 51, 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness in your sight. That's taking ownership. So then, Genesis chapter 3, God now says to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here we have, in a very brief, abbreviated paragraph, the fall of man. So what about the fallout? What were the consequences that followed the transgression of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? You remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, we didn't talk about this last week, there was a principle set forth by Moses in chapter 1, verse 11, concerning the physical creation. But it is just as applicable in the spiritual realm. God said, every seed brings forth after its own kind. You know what he's saying in short? You reap what you sow. You sow corn seed, you're going to reap corn. You sow bean seed, you'll reap beans. The fallout, the consequences, the consequences imposed upon the first couple, physical and spiritual. Spiritually, what happened? The intimate relationship that they enjoyed with God severed, wasn't it? In other words, they fell by transgression. Sin, according to Isaiah in chapter 59, separates us from God. And we'll talk about verse 15 in a moment or two.
But you think about that tragic day when they violated the very command of God, separated from their Creator. Physically speaking, God had said, the day you eat thereof, what's going to happen? You will surely die. Death began to prey upon the human family. Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. But Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore through one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, for that all have sinned. Every time we stand at the side of an open grave, we are reminded of what took place in the garden, aren't we? If you want to know something about the history of man, I encourage you to read Genesis chapter 5. In, in Genesis chapter 5, there is an expression that is used over and over again, and really it is a synopsis of the history of man. You know what that phrase that is used by Moses repetitively in that chapter is? And he died. And he died. And he died. Cemeteries are full of people that have stepped out into eternity. Until the Lord Jesus comes, Mankind will face, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the sting of death. And that includes those of us here tonight. Unless Jesus comes first, we will walk the corridors of death one day, won't we? Didn't, didn't the Hebrew writer say, it is appointed unto man once to die, after this comes the judgment? Physically speaking, God said, to the serpent, verse 14, because you've done this, he said, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Look at verse 16. Here's what God said specifically to the woman. The physical consequences of the fall. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Secondly, the headship of man. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And you go back and read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and there's a commentary there on the role of women. It takes us all the way back to the beginning. And now to Adam. God said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Drop down note if you would. In verse 22, God then said, Behold, the man has become like us, like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out, rather drove out the man and placed cherubim, that is, angelic beings. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read of another class of angels, the seraphim. 
You remember they cried out, Holy, holy, holy. Talking about God, they saw, they spoke of the Lord sitting upon His throne as Isaiah wrote. So in verse 24, God drove out the man and He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are a lot of folks in our world today, spiritually speaking, somehow they have this idea that they can sow bad seed and reap a good harvest. That principle laid down in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. It's true in the physical realm, material realm. It is also true in the spiritual realm, isn't it? Didn't Paul say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, God is not mocked? Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So you think about people in our world today. There are folks in our world today, they're suffering immeasurably because of poor choices, bad choices in life. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, you remember God said to the children of Israel, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, and God said, choose life that you and your descendants may live. God wants us to make right choices in life. Paul said, those who sow to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. But those who sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap destruction. You live a life of sin. And you live a life outside the boundaries of God's holy word. You may think you're getting by with it, but listen, there's coming a day when you will bow before the judge of all the earth. And you will reap the eternal consequences of having violated divine law. Something to think about. Adam and Eve. They learned something about the consequences of sin, didn't they? And you think about all the heartache and misery and sorrow and the disease and the illnesses and all the problems that we face in this world today. And you want to know where the source of all of that stems? The Garden of Eden and the fall of man. Every time I stand at the side of an open grave, and every time I try to give some measure of comfort to a family who has lost a loved one in Christ, and I see the tears and the sorrows and the sadness, I'm reminded of exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. To understand that the devil, his desire is to destroy the human family. And he has done an incredible job in that respect. He is our adversary. And let me tell you what, there's coming a day, as Jesus said, the devil, he's got his day coming. Jesus said on that great and final day, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God will roast Satan and his angels. You know, burn them up. And all I can say is good riddance. The devil's been an adversary to mankind throughout all these centuries. So he's trying to do everything he can to take as many people to hell with him as possible. Very quickly, the plan. Back up and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In light of this dismal picture, 
God now begins the unveiling of His redemptive plan. God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. This is a, this is a glimpse into God's marvelous redemptive plan. And Moses here is writing about the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, who would die on Calvary's cross and bruise the head of the devil. You remember the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus tasted death for every man. In about verse 14, he said, He destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus died and rose again on, on the third day, He delivered the devil a death blow. Now the Lord Himself, His heel would be bruised, but He would recover. So you have here a glimpse into God's redemptive plan. Now I said last week, as well as this evening, God endowed us with the ability to make choices in life, didn't He? When God before God ever created the human family, He had a plan in place to redeem us because He understood that given the ability to make choices, man in his fallible ways would ultimately succumb to temptation, thereby bringing sin into the world, necessitating a Savior. So in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, John writes, of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter talks about how we've been redeemed, not with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but rather with the precious blood of Christ, as of a Lamb without spot, without blemish. Listen to him. Who verily was foreordained before the world began, but manifest in these last times for you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption by Jesus Christ to Himself. All Paul's saying is that God had a plan in place so that when man sinned, and He did, Genesis chapter 3, God began unveiling, unfolding that redemptive plan. So you have in the book of Genesis, God calling on a man by the name of Abraham through whom this promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would emerge. You can trace the seed line through the descendants of Adam and Eve beginning with Seth. And then Abraham, God calls on him and says, In you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Abraham has a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac, as you well know, was that son of promise. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. There are 12 tribes. But God sent the Christ through that one tribe. So everything begins to unfold in the, New Te or in the Old Testament. When the New Testament, when we read Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Christ and the unfolding of the King, King Jesus. And so in the New Testament, the confirmation is the Christ, the promised seed, has come. Look, there is so much here. 
One other thought very quickly before our time's gone. Our time's been gone, but let me just very quickly call attention to verse 20. You remember in verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I would submit to you, this involved a blood sacrifice. You remember the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The shedding of the blood set forth in Genesis chapter 3 was a type of the blood that would be shed for the sins of the human family in Jesus. All those Old Testament sacrifices, beginning in the period of the patriarchs, down through the Mosaic dispensation, they prefigured the coming of the Christ and His vicarious suffering and death on Calvary. So because Jesus died on Calvary, we enjoy redemption today, don't we? Genesis chapter 3 is pivotal. The book of Genesis is a book of origins. Genesis chapter 3, we read about death, but the promise of life. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we encourage you to come to Christ, to understand that Jesus paid the price for your sins and mine. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 5, he said, When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8 he said, But God commends His own love toward us, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The price for sin has been paid. question of this hour, have your sins been covered by the blood of Jesus? If you believe Him to be the Son of God, you'd be willing to repent, to be baptized into Christ, God will wash away all your sins, put you in the church. If you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause, you have the opportunity to leave here this evening in fellowship with God once again. John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?